Do we need to do any follow-up to the last podcast? Because since then, you have played Super Smash Brothers. I mean, I could give a little quick my early impressions of Smash Brothers. Because, yeah, I got Smash Brothers for Christmas. We are recording us on the 2nd of January. Happy New Year! Thank you, McLean. You as well. Real quick, how was your holidays? Christmas was very strange. <laughs> For me, it's probably the most expensive Christmas on memory in terms of giving and receiving gifts. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, Christmas morning satisfaction, because none of the gifts arrived on Christmas morning. So we spent all this money back and forth, and then on Christmas morning we didn't have anything to do. Oh, wow. So it was a little strange on our end. Ours is sort of like that, but by design. So my family, we celebrate. Did I discuss my family situation? We did. You celebrate two or three Christmases. Right, right. I already went over that. I can't remember what I talk about on the podcast. You think I listen to it? I do listen to it. Um, (laughs) Over and over again, compulsively. I'm just trying to get our numbers up (laughs) single-handedly. But yeah, so my son's going to think that Christmas lasts for like three weeks because we celebrate Christmas with two sets of his grandparents, and then we have Christmas, and then we went to my grandmother's, so that's his great-grandmother, and it's just endless. He is so spoiled. It's ridiculous. And he's old enough now, like, he recognizes, like, what Christmas is. It's interesting because I got to see this evolve over the last couple months. Because my son, he turns three this month, actually, on the 11th. And so he's at that age where sometimes you can see developmental changes, like, in a matter of weeks. And it's fascinating. So October or something, we had uh, Christmas pictures made. And we kept asking him, you know, well, what do you want for Christmas? And all he would say was a tree. That was his most favorite thing about Christmas, apparently, was having a Christmas tree. And we were like, oh, that's cute. And finally, he started saying presents. But when we'd say, well, what do you want in your presents? He would just kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? I just, I want presents. Like, he didn't get, what do you want for your presents, you know? Then the presents started showing up under the tree. And even though he didn't specify what he wanted in them, he desperately wanted to open them. (laughs) And so he did. Michelle's dad and stepmom came down and gave him a couple of presents. Then we're in the other room having like a glass of wine or something, and next thing we know, we walk into the other room, and he has opened three presents, two of which were mine. <laughs> so I knew for a fact I was getting Smash Brothers about a week before Christmas, because I just was there on the floor. <laughs> which I thought was actually kind of funny. My, my wife was uh, was very upset. She was like, no, should I go get you something else? Is Christmas ruined? I'm like, no, I don't care. Is Christmas ruined? No, you have this adorable memory now you can share. Oh, man. So then we had to spend the rest of, like, the Christmas season policing him to make sure he didn't open up presents early. So that was my Christmas. Uh, New Year's. So my wife's laying down on the couch, and I'm like, are you going to be awake? And she's like, if I fall asleep, just wake me up. I pour two glasses of champagne and go talk to her and say, hey, get up. Let's have a New Year's. And she just kind of groans and says, I'll get up in a second. So naturally, I end up drinking both glasses of champagne and a couple others. <laughs> and then I come upstairs and I'm actually watching your stream. And about five minutes after midnight, my wife texts me. He's like, where are you? Are we going to have champagne? <laughs> so I go downstairs and have the glass of champagne with her. And she's like wide awake now and has like one glass of champagne. And I, she's like, are you drunk? I'm like, yes, I am a little drunk. I'm going to go to bed now. <laughs> So your wife goes to her folks around New Year's? Is that what she does? She goes over to her dad's house. Mm. And they have some bizarre New Year's tradition involving silly string. 
Okay. But they're all real light lightweights. Like she said before she left, Peanut tells me, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to drink or not. If I drink, I'm just going to spend the night there. I'll see you tomorrow. She comes rolling up the driveway like 1230. Oh, God. And it's a 20-minute drive from her dad, so the festivities <laughs> must have ended immediately at midnight. <laughs> but yeah, so Smash Brothers, um, it's good. I'm having about as much fun with it as I usually have with Smash Brothers. I'm not a fanatic. It's usually like a solid B kind of series for me. I know a lot of people who are big into the multiplayer are kind of salty about the unlock conditions. Me, that's 90% of the fun I'm going to have with the game. It's just playing to unlock stuff. And then once I unlock everything, there's not really much else for me to do besides to get better at multiplayer, which is just not going to happen. Well, you can just go ahead and wipe your save and then start over and unlock everything again. Eh, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm not one to replay games very often just because there's so many games. Mm-hmm. The game has to be pretty special for me to replay it. It usually has to be short and amazing. But yeah, it's pretty fun. I like the way it plays. Uh, it's faster and the characters are more unified in a way. Like everyone has kind of the same jump everyone's closer to the same speed i mean there's obviously faster characters and slower characters but everything just feels a little bit more uniform in a good way if that makes sense like i don't pick up a link now and feel like i'm moving in molasses compared to the other people i'm not very good at smash brothers but i played online with a friend who is basically a smash brothers novice like this is the first time he was like all right fine i'll buy smash brothers i've never really done it before and i beat him like six times in a row online and felt kind of bad and i was like okay let's do something else (laughs) And then I would proceeded to play online with randos and just got obliterated. Yeah, I, I have no fun playing online with randos. None at all. I actually like the uh, the World of Light. The silly single player is fun. I wish I had some platforming stages. They're basically all just fights, but they're all gimmicky in some way. And it's actually kind of interesting because what they'll do is they'll have like a classic Nintendo character that's like the avatar of the fight. It's the spirit. Right. And then it'll be represented by a Smash Brothers fighter and then conditions. You might have Excite Bike might be the spirit and so it'll be avatared by wario but literally all he does is his motorcycle move over and over again and then there's like a classic mode on top of that which is you pick a character and there's six fights and a bad boss fight at the end yeah and it has the same like intensity mode as smash 4 did it's a little different so smash 4 you set the intensity and then i believe you earned gold and if you continued you lost gold for your pot or something I remember gold being very important. This one puts a lot more emphasis on items. I don't pay that much attention to items. So what I do is I set the intensity all the way up, which you can start at five. And then if you do well, you gain intensity. And if you lose, if you continue, it drops the intensity, but then you continue the fight. So what's your average finish? Whereabouts do you usually cross the line at the end? If I know the character, I'm finishing around a seven, usually over five, uh, even if I don't know the character very well. I had a really frustrating run with Little Mac. Uh, well, it wasn't perfect, because if it's perfect, you get up to like 9-9. Nine, nine. But I had a really good run. I didn't get defeated at all. Um, and I got up to like intensity like 8-8 eight, eight or something. And then I just got pounded by the master hand and crazy hand combo. Because everything you do with Little Mac to beat the characters when you're fighting normally, you can't do against the bosses. Because Little Mac's all about controlling space and holding his ground in the middle of the stage. And then you right, have to the go... the bosses can't... They, they don't flinch. They can't be... Knock they down, can't, they, they can't don't they stunned. don't flinch and they stay airborne and like so little mac just is worthless against the boss fight so yeah i have gripes about that like i hate it when games <laughs> switch styles on you for boss fights or just in the middle of things and like eh, i don't like that i have to give the the smash people a little credit uh, a lot of credit actually because sometimes you play these celebration games 
uh, or even just any kind of licensed game. And you can tell that the people who designed it, they don't care about the source material. They're just cashing a check, just trying to get through the day. Believe it or not, I have a DS game based on Survivor that is clearly made by people who've never watched Survivor in their life. Now, that could be fun if it was like a 1980s NES game where you play Survivor, but it's inexplicably like a side-scrolling shooter platformer. (laughs) But the people who made Smash Brothers have a laser-focused attention to detail when it comes to making sure that all of the series lore, and they're working with 30, 40, when you count the spirits and everything, all the source material from all different directions. It's hundreds of source materials. Like, it's not like they just said, okay, we've got Nintendo license, let's put a thousand Pokemon in there, and then, like, Mock Rider, you know? I fought a spirit that I didn't even realize was a character. It's apparently an avatar character from Wii Music. It's like a conductor. I'm not even kidding. I was like, what the hell is that? My favorite spirit that I've seen is Paz Ortega. And (laughs) Paz Ortega, obviously, is a major character from the latter half of the Metal Gear series, Metal Gear Solid, from games that have never appeared on a Nintendo console. We've covered all of that, I'm sure. Oh yeah, for sure. And her special ability, if you use the Paz spirit on your character, is you start equipped with a bob Yep. And when I saw that confirmed, I'm like, oh no, they didn't. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's terrible. If you don't know why that's <laughs> funny, go play uh, Metal Gear Solid Five Ground Zeroes, and you will be probably really disturbed. But then if you have a twisted sense of humor like we do, you will probably follow it up with laughter. (laughs) The highlight of my holidays was on the 27th, a couple days after Christmas, we had our holiday party. We do this every year. We invite all our friends over. And Peanut and I put all of our resources together. I made a dish called timpano. I saw these pictures and I was amazed and a little horrified and immensely hungry. (laughs) Uh, We got the idea from an episode of Binging with Babish, but there's hundreds of recipes out there. We did all kinds of research where people do in various timpanos. So what this is, is basically you roll out a big, like the largest pasta circle you've ever seen in your life. Mm -hmm. And you use it to line the inside of your Dutch oven and have enough hanging over the sides that it hangs like halfway down the side. And then you fill the inside with every Italian dinner you've ever heard of. And then you fold it over the top and you brush it with oil. And you put it in the oven, and then an hour later, this 20-pound monstrosity comes out. There, there'll be a link in the in the show notes to... I was literally going to go grab it while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing presentation. So we had everybody in. I, I'm on one side of our bar, and everybody else on the other side, and I come out with this giant pan, and I have to flip this thing, okay? And we don't have anything to flip it onto. The only platter we had in the house that was big enough to sit a Dutch oven on was in our freezer with a turkey carcass on it. Peanut takes her turkey carcass from Thanksgiving, and then a month later, she makes turkey soup. Oh, yeah. So what she found was this round glass, I think it's a cake-serving tray, Mm -hmm. just barely big enough to fit over the top of this Dutch oven. In fact, it looks like it was designed for this purpose. It's actually quite (laughs) impressive. Oh, yeah, I guess you can see the the little serving tray. Oh, no, I'm looking at it right now. I actually remember thinking that without context. I was like, wow, that's a great little serving tray. I wonder if they bought that for this. <laughs> no, we just had that in a closet somewhere with dust and had to be cleaned off. And so, okay, I got to flip this. And there's not a lot of place to get grip. We put tin foil all over the bar in case the thing explodes and goes everywhere. 
Everybody's watching. All my friends are watching. It's like a big presentation and open the thing. So the house is now filled with the smell of Italian food. And I flip it. And the first thing that happens is like, my arms are not prepared for this maneuver. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be able to hold this for very long. <laughs> Maybe a few seconds. And then there's just this loud thud. And then everybody's eyes go wide. <laughs> and for a second, I'm like, oh, so there's just going to be Timpano all over the house. And the dogs will enjoy it. But no, it slid right out into the little thing, and I set it down and pulled it off, and everybody oohed and odd. And then after a couple slices, I actually got the hang of actually keeping it intact, so the, our, the back half of our friends actually got a nice pie-wedge slice of timpano. If it's anything like any other cake or pie I've ever cut in my life, the first one just comes out as a pie. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened with this one. What do you even cut that with? Do you just have a big, uh, like, just a regular old carving knife yeah, or something? Yeah, giant carving knife is exactly what I used, and then we had the little pie slice... To actually dish it out with all of the traditional timpano recipes i've looked at though mm -hmm. one of the because you can see it's various layers we have layers of pasta and meats and, and eggplants and every, meatballs and everything else one of the layers is supposed to be hard-boiled eggs mm -hmm. and everybody i told that to said we're glad you didn't put in hard-boiled eggs i'm trying to think what that would do that just doesn't sound right for texture i could see a layer of fried egg like a nice round <laughs> fried egg in the middle of it but not hard-boiled. I mean, I don't eat eggs anyway. I don't particularly care for any egg Oh, well, dish. if you don't like eggs, that's fine. Just, who cares? You can't hard-boil an egg and then bake it in an oven for an hour. Like, what happened? Like, the egg at that point, doesn't it just get, like, really rubbery? Or I honestly don't know. That's an application of egg I've never tried. Um, I would actually think you almost could put... Because is this meat raw in here, or did you? was it pre-cooked? No, everything in the timpano was cooked. Okay, so yeah. you weren't actually cooking the meat. No, and in fact, if you look at the layer that has the sausages and the vegetables, you can see the steam still coming off, because those were very freshly cooked. Those had just came off the... Uh, oh, the, the, the layer I'm looking at that I thought was raw meat is actually salami. Okay, I thought that was just ground meat. Oh, no, those are slices of the most expensive salami that they had at the Italian market. Mm. With freshly grated... Have you ever tried to grate a large quantity of Parmesan cheese? No. <laughs> That's a workout, my friend. No, I have not. That's that's that the only awful. way I was able to flip the timpano was I had the upper arm strength from grating that cheese earlier in the day. <laughs> that's where that came from. Don't think that's how muscle gains work. I think if anything, you were just more tired. <laughs> <laughs> so what I make for New Year's because uh, we always do a thing for New Year's where we get a ham bone from one of our Christmas celebrations. We got one from my parents this year, and uh, so we get a ham bone around Thanksgiving or Christmas. We freeze it. And then I make a New Year's stew. I put the ham bone, which is really, it's a hawk of meat. It's the, when you get a spiral sliced ham, there's always a big hawk at the end that they don't spiral because there's a bone in there. Yeah. Uh, that you use for soup stock. And so I put that in there. And then it's basically like a can of chicken broth, several cans of stewed tomatoes, black-eyed peas, garlic, carrots, celery, that, and onion, that kind of thing. Like This a, is sounding real, real Southern. It's oh, it's a very southern. I think this came from like Better Homes and Gardens or something like that. Like I, that's I what imagine, this came from. Yeah. It's I mean, it's a stew. Mm -hmm. The original recipe actually is for a soup. Like you just do it on the stovetop. We do it as a crockpot recipe. So we put it on New Year's Eve. Try to not slice up a finger, cutting up stuff. A couple of glasses of champagne in, and then you put it all in the crockpot. You put it on, and then you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you're hungover. 
and you're tired and the kid's screaming at seven o'clock in the morning, but the entire house just smells like ham and tomato and garlic. <laughs> and you go downstairs and you top it with spinach and just let the spinach, because you don't want to leave the spinach overnight. That would get gross. But you right. top it with spinach when it's just on the warm setting. And then you serve it up. You top it with a little fresh spinach on top. It gets your pork, your black eyed peas and your greens. And that's your trio. That's all you need for New Year's. In the South. I don't know how you guys do. <laughs> I think we just ate leftover Italian food. See, you need to eat New Year's stew. That's how you're supposed to have your luck for the year. I believe that the theory is the pork is for health, the black-eyed peas are for luck, and the greens are for wealth. Something like that. Or okay. prosperity or something. You know, like, basically for money. But there's, I think that's the way that the tradition goes. And if this is your New Year's tradition, this stew, how wealthy are you? Uh, I mean, we got a house, so we're well enough. It's not supposed to make you rich. It's supposed to make you, like, just not, you know. Oh, okay, I see. Wealthy enough to make next year's stew, at least. Yeah, exactly. We came into possession of a second dog over the holidays. That was Peanut's Christmas present this year, was I had set aside some money to adopt a new puppy for her, because our dog is getting very, very old. Uh, Edgar's an old man now. Is the idea that Edgar's going to go at some point, so you got a puppy... So you don't have to have, like, the gap between dogs? Is that what you're going for? Listen, the gap between dogs is a real thing. My parents, they had a Shih Tzu for many years, and before the Shih Tzu died, my brother and his then-girlfriend got a little Chewini that they couldn't take care of. So the Chewini ended up at Mom's house. Mm -hmm. And they could not say enough good things about this dog. For one thing, let me say that their dog, Rudy, is his name, is the best dog on the planet. Best dog I've ever met. And having him in the house with the old boy helped to kind of energize him in his final years of life. Mm -hmm. And it smoothed over the transition when they eventually did have to take him in and he had to be put down. They had Rudy at home to soften the blow. So I've seen firsthand how that works. Right. Peanut's parents, they had a golden retriever named Rusty, who was also very old. I think he made it to 15 or 16 years old. And he died and they didn't have the buffer dog. And that was a couple years ago. And to this day, we brought uh, our new Chihuahua, Rydia over to visit them on Christmas, and my stepmother-in-law wouldn't even pet her. She's like, oh, I still can't look at another dog. I'm still too sad. See, I'm one of those people who is very much in the deal with the pain of a lost animal by getting a new animal. Yeah. <laughs> like, that wouldn't bother me. Um, it's been a long time since I've lost a pet and been petless. Mm -hmm. The last time we lost a cat, but we had two other cats. So for a brief time, we had three cats, and uh, which is too many. One, one cat is too many. I don't recognize cats as pets. Cats are parasites that leash resources out of your house and give you nothing in return. Wait, well, what is a chihuahua? A dog. I mean, in my... Dogs are the best animals on the planet. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. But see, to me, if it's small enough to put into a handbag, it doesn't count as a dog. It doesn't count as a dog. <laughs> you, what you actually have is a cat or maybe a large rodent. They have a large gerbil. <laughs> you have a nutria is what you have. Now that's southern. That's good eating right there. <laughs> oh my god. This is such a weird aside, but for a while there, there was a commercial for a lotion or something, and they had the lotion claimed to have something called Nutria Moisture. Ew. And I think it was supposed to be... Yeah, I know! <laughs> and we would laugh every single time we saw it. God, you know what those things remind me of is the Swamp Rats from The Princess Bride? Oh it's yeah, horrible, the R-O-T-S's. R-O-R-O... UTS is rats of unusual art, whatever. Trying to get Peanut a new puppy for Christmas turned into a comedy of errors. <laughs> 
first of all, most shelters won't adopt out a, a surprise puppy for Christmas. It's not good for the puppy. It's not good for the household. Right. Because what you're really giving is the responsibility of taking care of the dog. Right. And it's cute on the morning, but they don't want to do any of the work, so it ends up back at the shelter. Yeah, a lot of gift dogs end up back at shelters, and it's just not good for anyone. So the rescue said, in order to kind of avoid that, we need to take down the phone number of all the adults living in the household just so we can ensure that everybody knows that a dog is coming and everybody's willing to take care of them. I mean, that was going to ruin the surprise, but I told Peanut what was happening, gave her the phone number, mm-hmm. and they give me a call about a week later saying, well, we called the vet's office that you have down for Edgar, and they say they haven't seen Edgar in six years. Uh-oh. Because what had happened was Peanut had changed Edgar's vet without me knowing it, and I still had his old vet information. Oh, you don't take you don't do vet stuff with him. No, she does all the vet stuff. Gotcha. And then when we bought this house, she wanted to find him a new vet, somebody closer, so we're not driving across the county. And amidst all of the other stuff, you know, you bought a house recently and <laughs> all oh, yeah. this stuff. She forgot to do it. So Edgar hadn't seen a vet in two years. We're actually in the same boat. I have not taken my dogs to the, my dog or cats to the vet since we moved, which is eight months, mm-hmm. and for probably six months before that was our last visit. I don't know if you know this, but do you know what happens when you try to adopt a dog and you tell them you already have a dog that hasn't seen a vet in two years? They tell you, in no uncertain terms, we're not giving you a dog. You cannot be trusted with a dog, clearly, because you're not taking your current dog to the vet. Oh, no. So that fell through. I wasn't able to adopt a dog. And I explained all this to Peanut. This is still a week out from Christmas, easily. (laughs) And she gets really sad. And I'm like, okay, well, you're going to be on Christmas break. She's a teacher, so she has two weeks off. We'll get Edgar set up with a new doctor. Then after the new year, I'll keep an eye on the rescues and we'll keep an eye on the classifieds. And we'll find you a nice puppy after the new year. She's like, okay. (laughs) Two days later, we're both at home not doing much of anything. And she's like, can we just go to the pet store and just look at puppies and maybe see what kind I want to get? I'm not going to buy a puppy. They're too expensive at pet stores. Right. So the third puppy she picked up now lives in our house. (laughs) Of course. It ended up being five or six times more expensive <laughs> purchasing oh, yeah, this sure. dog. And we're on the hook for all the shots and the, the getting her spayed and everything. So that's that's why I say Peanut, she didn't have anything under the Christmas tree to unwrap <laughs> because she got this dog a week earlier. Just Did you put a bow on the dog on Christmas morning? We did, of course. And I will say that my mom's dog, Rudy, seems to be at the same developmental stage as your son. Because he loves opening up presents. He gets his nose inside the wrapping paper and shakes his head violently. Wrapping paper and ribbons go everywhere. He knows how to open presents. The other dogs have no idea. My dog has no idea how to open presents. She's she's an old dog who has never shown any interest in in that. Which is probably a good thing because she's never been a chewer just in general. Mm -hmm. So We've had, I think, two pairs of shoes destroyed. By Rydia already? Oh, yeah. Well... Let me qualify that. Not by Rydia. It's not her fault that Peanut doesn't put her shoes away. If she put her shoes away, the dog wouldn't be able to get her mouth around them to chew on them. You'll notice that Rydia has not chewed up my shoes (laughs) because I put them away. The only thing our dog, Pearl, has ever chewed up was um, she's a very nervous dog. And so when we first got her, she wasn't a puppy. She was like two or three years old when we got her. And uh, we had her in the house and... For whatever reason, we didn't put her in her crate. We were trying her outside of the crate just during the day. We went out to run errands or something. We were like, okay, we're going to leave you inside the house. Bye. <laughs> we come back, and she has eaten 
the blinds off the window in the front because what I didn't realize was she was looking out that window and she was do that whenever I would come home from work. She would look out that window, which was like halfway open. And for whatever reason, I had closed the blinds. So she opened them with her teeth. That's <laughs> just trying to get the blinds open, see what's going on outside. So from that point on, we had to always leave those blinds just a little bit open. And I bought some of that um, bitter spray. Mm-hmm. And just saturated. I had to replace the blinds, and I saturated them in that bitter spray, which I don't know if it actually made a difference or not. Uh, but I will tell you that bitter spray works. Have you ever used it? We didn't use anything as fancy as bitter spray. We prepared a bottle of apple vinegar mm-hmm. for Edgar when Edgar was a puppy, and ended up not needing it because he doesn't want to put anything in his mouth. <laughs> right. So the bitter spray, I think it's like five bucks from the pet store or something. It's just a spray of. Just something that's super bitter. And I can tell you this from firsthand knowledge because I sprayed bitter spray all over a bunch of stuff, washed my hands, I thought very thoroughly, and then had chicken wings for dinner. And they were the worst tasting chicken wings I had ever had in my life because the spray taste was still on my fingers. It was real bad. Let me tell you. We had a dog. God, this was many, many years ago. Before I was, I was still in elementary school, like third or fourth grade. Uh, Our family adopted a dog named Buckwheat after the racist character in Little Rascals. Right, right, of course. We adopted him from, like, a family friend of a friend who couldn't take care of him anymore. He was disabled. This was an enormous dog. I think it was a black lab, but I couldn't swear to that now. Right. You could put a saddle on this dog and ride him around. Super nice, fairly well-behaved, considering. But we're trying to take care of this dog. There's four of us, and we're just in this little tiny house in suburban Florida. My brother and I would get home from school... Early in the afternoon, and my parents wouldn't get home from work for a few hours. So we had we were latchkey kids for a couple of hours. Right. And we got home from school one day, and the door of my bedroom had been shredded, completely <gasps> eaten through, the entire door. And we were terrified. We ran to our neighbor's house, who we'd never spoken to before, and got their phone and called uh, one of my uncles who came out. What had happened was our neighbor behind us on the other side of a fence had a girl dog who was in heat. That she was keeping outside, and it drove poor Buckwheat completely insane. Oh my god. So he ate the door to get out of the room, which is, I learned now, that's why my parents had locked him in our bedroom, was so he couldn't get outside. Little did they know. Oh my god. Well, you were at um, Dragon Con the year my dog broke into the house, weren't you? (laughs) I think I remember that. We had, um, when we bought the house, this is our old house, the back door had, um, it was actually a cat door. It was this little door that you could either have open or had like a thing, a mechanism on it where you could let the cats go in and out. And we kept it locked. And we go out to Dragon Con and it's, you know, Dragon Con's in the middle of the summer and in Georgia in the middle of the summer, you sometimes get horrific thunderstorms and one popped up. Didn't mean to leave my dog out in the rain, but it just happens. And she freaked the hell out and literally chewed on that cat door until she pulled it out of the frame and then squeezed her 50 pound body through the hole. So we come home, you know what all eight of us or however many people were staying with us that year at Dragon Con. We come home from Dragon Con and Pearl greets me at the door. And the first thing I say to to my wife is, did we leave the dog in? (laughs) And then we both look to the back door, and there's just a hole in it. Yeah. So that was fun. So we ended up putting a um, a metal plate over it. Like, I just went to the hardware store, got, like, a sheet of aluminum, 
slapped a sheet of aluminum on one side, sprayed the inside with a bunch of like foam, and then slapped an aluminum plate on the other side. <laughs> that stayed that way for eight years or something. And we kept saying, well, we're going to have to replace that door eventually. When we went to sell the house, we decided we were going to be cheap and just said, you know what? Michelle actually found the original cat door so it would fit the hole. And so I had to pull the plate off, clean off the door, and install a new cat door. (laughs) So we sold the house with the same model cat door that it was originally on it. It was this fancy thing where it had like a magnet mechanism. So you put a magnet on the cat's like collar and it's supposed to like let the cat in and out. No idea if it actually works. We never let a cat out with it. Uh, (laughs) Sounds way too complicated. It was way too complicated. I was going to buy a new door. I was like, let's just buy a new door. And then I started pricing exterior doors. Mm -hmm. It was expensive. It was really expensive. So instead, you were the homeowners who just did some slapdash repair job to cause complications for the new homeowners coming in. Um, I mean, honestly, I think I did a pretty damn good job with it. I worked my butt off on that. No, the slapdash repair we did was the coat of resealant that I put on the bathtub that was cracking. (laughs) That's the slapdash repair. Uh, We've been in our house for three years now. Long enough that all of those little, like, last minute repairs that you have to do before you sell the house are starting to break down. And you're like, (laughs) That's fun. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Your dog was pretty old before you moved. Like, how long did it take to get her acclimated to the new house after you moved? Honestly, she seemed fine relatively quick. We put her in the backyard. We got a bigger backyard. We put her back there. We ran around with her for a little bit. We brought her in. We showed her her food. And she was like, okay, cool, whatever. Uh, But our dog's old. For the most part, she's fine. Uh, We give her drugs when fireworks go off. That's about the worst that we have to deal with. But yeah, she's just an old dog. She mostly just wants to sleep on the couch or sleep on the floor next to you. My dog hates the sound of fireworks and thunder and big trucks. And there's a space behind my TV where all my wiring and stuff is that he'll crawl back there laboriously to get all the way to the back far corner. It's always dark and he's under layers of electronics and shelving. Rudy is not allowed back there on account of all the wires. So on New Year's Eve, when all the fireworks are going off, I had to set him back there and then block up the two exits with boxes so Rhea couldn't get through yeah pearl spent most of new year's under my feet at my computer desk because i have like a computer desk with two sides that are pretty heavy so she just got up underneath there underneath my feet and um, pretty much just slept she was fine when she got under there but she was super annoying up until that well until the drugs took hold Right. No, the drugs are great. We went to the vet, and at first we were trying Benadryl. They told me a dose of Benadryl that I could use with her, and that helped, but it wasn't great. And then we were finally like, look, do we have anything prescription strength that they can give us? And they said, sure. So they gave me something, and I was joking that it was doggy Xanax. And then I looked it up, and it's just Xanax. <laughs> it's apparently you can do, I think it's called an extra script or something like that i forget exactly what the term is but you can basically give dogs people drugs if you just know the dosage so yeah we give our dog xanax i've literally thought about taking it before when i was really stressed out about something but i have no (laughs) idea what my dosage would be no we don't i don't give any kind of drugs to calm him down I mean, if he if he has a spot and he calms down, that's one thing. Pearl, she actually could be a danger to herself and to us if she doesn't calm down. Like, she just wants to climb on you. And she's a 50-pound dog yeah. with sharp claws that don't get trimmed often enough. So I'm like, no, you have to get down. 
Whereas Edgar is the exact opposite. Because if, if Edgar were any bigger, we would have had to have him put down because he's violent and mean and bites everybody. We used to joke that the smaller the dog, the more vicious they are. Like, Great Danes are like the most chill dog in the world. And I think it's because they don't have to prove anything. <laughs> <laughs> when Edgar finally did go to the vet, because uh, Rydia needed her first round of shots and Edgar needed his old man checkup. Perfect bill of health, by the way. The vet completely checked him off. Everything's working fine, as well as could be expected for a 12-year-old five-pound dog. But I'm sitting in there waiting for them to bring my chihuahua back with all her shots and sitting there with Edgar in his cage. And he hates being in his cage. Right. So he's he's whining and he's whimpering and he's scratching the edge. There's a man with an enormous, some kind of, uh, some kind of pit bull mix mm-hmm. who had just had surgery. So he had the big plastic cone on his head. And he's doing his paperwork or whatever and paying for the visit. And this pit bull is just keeps looking at Edgar's cage and he's freaking out. He cannot handle it. Wait, Edgar can't handle the thing looking at no, him? No, or the... the pit bull couldn't handle the sounds like, whatever's in that cage, I'm terrified of it. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> Edgar couldn't see him at all because I had him turned around. He could only see me. I saw this pit bull just, I've seen fear like that. Just not in a dog that big of my gerbil. Oh, that's hilarious. Dogs are crazy. I love dogs. It sucks because every once in a while, I'm like, oh, it would be so easy if we just didn't have a dog right now to go do blank thing. But I know whenever my dog goes, because she's an old dog, she's going to go at some point. We'll probably get another dog. We might take some time off. I don't want the overlap dog. I don't want two dogs. You don't want the buffer dog. Well, I'm very clear with Peanut that we don't have two dogs. We have one dog and then his replacement. That he is training up for when he eventually retires. Riddy is like just on the bench right now. That was a personal victory that I'm claiming. Because you can name your dog anything, you know. Mm-hmm. There's there's no rules. And a lot of people just name their dogs like after random things. Right. My mom's dog Rudy is named after the character in the movie, Rudy. Oh, nice. Because he was the runt of the litter and nobody wanted him. And Wait, the runt of the chihuahua litter? He's a chihuahua. He's half chihuahua, half dachshund. Ah, uh, still. We did the same thing when we got Edgar. We're like, what are we going to name this dog? And I'm like, let's name him after a Final Fantasy character randomly. So we get the new dog, and we could have done the same thing. Uh, I did veto because she wanted to name her. She had a couple different names picked out. I said, well, we can't have any Spanish names. I don't want to be the white people that get a chihuahua and give her a Spanish name. That's right. not comfortable with that. But I pitched a couple of Final Fantasy names, and we got it narrowed down to Rydia or Pinello. Mm-hmm. And now that we've selected Rydia 12 years from now, we get a third dog. Now I've established a pattern and Peanut is just OCD enough that she's not going to be able to break this pattern. So what is what is your third time is the charm dog name? Like, do you have a plan? Oh, we're, we're still way, way out. We're, you'll have to ask us again in uh, 20, 30 or so. I secretly kind of love Pinello because um, I don't really care much about Final Fantasy V, but I think Penny would be a cute, like, diminutive of Pinello. You think Pinello's in Final Fantasy V? Did I say Final Fantasy V? I'm at 12. Mm-hmm. You, you did. I don't like five that much either, to be completely <laughs> honest. How close are we to finishing the story in 15 now? Um, so I'm at the point that the lads are sad, uh, which affected me so much more than I would have expected because whoever wrote this one did so much subtle work with it. And part of it's the voice acting is is fantastic. And so there's so many little like subtle things. I'm just thinking like when you and your bros kind of have that energy, you know, where you're just the first time I tried to sleep at like a inn or whatever. And what's his name was like, do you want to look at some pictures? And Noctis is like, not really. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) 
I don't think I've touched it since then, to be completely honest. It was so sad. You're in a point in the game where... I think there's only one campground in the whole section of the game that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Camping's a big part of the game when you're out running the mission. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And every time you camp, you know, Ignis gets that look in his eye and he busts out his recipe book and you've got the big long list. The scene where you're at, when you finally do get to a campground, the only recipe you can make is pork and beans. <laughs> Wait, are you like, s- it's so sad. Are you serious? He doesn't, he can't make any, because I, I don't want to... We're, we're going to have our opportunity to spoil all of Final Fantasy XV when you finally finish it. We do the big Final Fantasy XV podcast. Right. No, but... I mean, without spoiling it, <laughs> Ignis is having a problem right now. Yeah. So he gets to that scene. Like, oh, the only thing he can make is, like, beans and toast. Oh, my God. That's the only thing he's up. Oh, breaks your heart. Oh, yeah. I have not actually gotten to that campground yet. I'm not mad you spoiled it because I don't care that much. But that that is going to break <laughs> my heart when I get there. Because I'm at the uh, – I haven't gotten to the campground yet. I'm still kind of dinking around at the, the station where you can – you yeah. can sleep there. I did dip my toe into the dungeon. Oh, yeah. It's rough. And, like, it's so funny because, like, I love the Final Fantasy thirteen trilogy. Unironically. Completely love the Final Fantasy thirteen trilogy where it's so over the top. Like, you're fighting gods and lightning is, like, punching snow. And it's just so freaking over the top. But I love it. But then I'm playing Final Fantasy fifteen. It's doing so much with so much less. Actually, really impressive. As much as I play Final Fantasy games for the story, it's usually the more Shakespearean over the top side of things, not the subtle qualities. So when I got like to some of the parts where when the lads got sad, I was just like, oh, I am deeply affected by this. <laughs> okay, so plot wise. About how far the way percentage do you think I'm into the game at this point? About halfway. About halfway? Okay. Keeping in mind that like the plot is very backloaded. Right. Because So the impression I got is I've done the big open world section, and now I'm kind of on the plot railroad, literally metaphorically. It is. I did appreciate how it's an actual railroad. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was like, okay. Little on the nose, Square Enix, but funny, so it gets a pass. Well, because you spent the entire, like, first half of the game, and probably way more than half of the game in terms of gameplay hours, and it's just like, get on the boat. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get on the boat later. And then finally was like, okay, I'll go get on the boat. And I go to get on the boat, and they're like, just kidding, we can't get on the boat yet. (laughs) Go to this lighthouse for a little while, hang out there. And then you get on the boat, and then they're like, do you want to time travel with your dog? And go back to that place, and I'm like, hell yeah, I do. So I went and did that for a little while, came back. I find that players seem about split. Half of the people I've spoken to didn't know you could go back. What? And the other half, like, that's the thing they did immediately. So I guess not every player finds out that you have a magic time-traveling dog. But I don't think it's possible to skip that. Whatever she is, the demigoddess who comes and visits you basically comes and says, you can return to the past, use your dog. And then every time you go to the inn after that... It has an option to talk to your dog. Mm-hmm. How do you miss that? The only thing I could think of is that they've patched it in to make it that easy to find. Well, how was it when you played? Because you played it at launch, right? I, I don't remember. I'll tell you this. I didn't use the dog to travel back in time. You didn't? Oh, okay. Maybe they no, did. I, I knew that you could, but I didn't. Maybe they did patch it to make it more obvious. Because I'm playing for the first time on the Windows version. So I got stupid stuff like the monster truck. The first time around. That's pretty fun, That's man. That's pretty stupid. Like It's really dumb. I'm not but... going to lie. I probably put about five more hours on the mainland because I was about to get on the boat. And then it was like, you have a monster truck now. I was like, okay. But I'll tell you what I did. 
I almost immediately got it stuck between two trees. And it was like that goddamn scene in Austin Powers where I'm just going back and forth <laughs> trying to get my monster truck out. Because they clearly did not design the map with the monster truck in mind. They went in later and said, okay, let's take this thing off road. And the map yeah. does not really work with it at all. I spent, God, a couple of hours trying to get the monster truck on those like big rock spine constructions that are out there in the wilderness. I spent a couple hours trying to do it. And I've tried it at all the different ones. And I eventually was tired. And I'm like, you know what? They must have just made really sure this isn't possible. I go on YouTube and typed it up. Nope. Somebody, first 30 seconds, somebody's up there launching. It's like, God damn it. I got to get up there. That's one of my things with... So, I, you know, I played Breath of the Wild. And I'm a big Zelda fanboy. And I love Breath of the Wild. And there's just something weird to me about... Because Breath of the Wild was designed with the you-can-go-anywhere mentality. Which I know you can't literally go anywhere but it comes pretty damn close and they literally designed it so you can st whenever you're standing at a certain point you could see landmarks and you can say i'm gonna go there but every other open world game final fantasy 15 included there's places where they make these awesome looking structures these valleys or these peaks but they're just background there's that like ravine that you know, they keep saying, oh, yeah, during the Battle of the Gods, they created this ravine because something, something explosion. And I'm like, I want to go down there. You can't go down there. You can't just jump into the ravine and go explore, you know? There is an answer to your question that makes sense. But I have to ask you, like, do you specifically set up situations where I have to talk bad about Breath of the Wild? Because <laughs> you know the people don't like hearing me talk bad about Breath of the Wild. Here's the thing. I don't mind being critical about Breath of the Wild. I don't. I, I know no, it's no, not a perfect But you're making game. me be critical about it so you can get off scot-free. There is an answer to your question. There's a reason open world games do that. The Elder Scrolls games don't allow you to fly anymore. Uh, Are you going to say it's because there's nothing interesting there's there? There's nothing there. Yeah. There's nothing of interest. And that's, the, that's one of the criticisms I have of Breath of the Wild is, yeah, you can climb that big rock and all of the identical 3,000 big rocks, and there's nothing on any of them. It's just a waste of time going up there. There might be a Karoke. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe there's a nice view, but... Oh my god. So, like, in Final Fantasy XV, when I was trying to get up on the big rocks, like, I knew that if I did get up there, it would be because I found a weird glitch angle. Like, I knew that there wasn't going to be just a convenient ramp place. <laughs> you also knew you weren't going to get up there and, like, a cactuar wasn't going to give you, like, a present for it. Right. I, all I was going to do is drive across the thing and maybe just launch myself off to my death. Like, that was the only thing I wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. That, that's why open GTA games and... Well, GTA... Because there's, no, there's nothing up GTA there. is actually better than most. Like, at least as of San Andreas. Like, I know that the, the series started off pretty primitive. Like, you couldn't even swim in Vice City. But San Andreas is pretty good about letting you get to places. You can eventually get a rocket pack in San Andreas, and I think you can <laughs> land on top of basically any of the buildings. I'll tell you this, man, because GTA V, you have the city, and then you have just the giant country around it, mm -hmm. and there's nothing out there. Really? Nothing at all. There is a lot of emptiness in San Andreas. Uh, did you ever play San Andreas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. San Andreas is one because I feel like it was sort of peak old GTA kind of blending into new technology like they really perfected the ps2 i kind of would love an hd port of san andreas which i guess i could get on the pc but i don't know how much that actually changes it's not an hd port for one thing yeah i mean they probably up some stuff san andreas is one i'd actually kind of like to replay because i actually found the characters likable that was the problem i had with gta 4 like i played it for a little bit and i was like i hate this guy so much 
I don't want to like the people in Grand Theft Auto. That's why I like Vice City, because you're playing as Tommy Versetti, who's the least likable protagonist imaginable. He's just a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. San Andreas, you're playing as CJ, and CJ's like just a good kid in a bad situation, but now he's murdering people with a baseball bat. Oh, and... don't get me wrong. There is a complete <laughs> disconnect between the narrative and the gameplay. But mm-hmm. but I kind of love that. Like, it's kind of funny to me. <laughs> also, Sam Jackson is in San Andreas. I think before Sam Jackson could, like, demand more money than God. Like, he had done some cool <laughs> stuff at that point, but he wasn't, like... Before he was Nick Fury. Right, exactly. He wasn't getting Marvel money yet. <laughs> A Marvel movie made me real upset, McLean, this week. Oh, God. Real upset. What Marvel movie? It was the newest Avengers movie. Uh, I didn't watch it. Okay. okay. I have too much good sense for that. I'm going to spoil the ending, though. All right, fair, whatever. It, it's not going to matter because the ending is stupid. So you have a villain named Thanos, who's a big purple blob monster. Right. And I watched a YouTube video saying why Thanos is the new Darth Vader. And I'm like, no, he's not the new Darth Vader. Isn't he just so, an uninteresting, I want to kill people kind of dude? He's a really interesting character from the sense that he's really well written and well animated and well acted. Like, he's got a lot of dimension to him. He's meant to be really sympathetic in some ways. So kudos to them for making this believable whatever villain. Mm -hmm. Here's what made me mad. Thanos, what he wants to do is kill half the people in the universe. And he's going to do this with a magic glove. Right, he has the magic gauntlet of dissolving people or whatever. Yes, he gets the magic glove and he casts this magic spell that dissolves half the people in the universe... And the only part of, I don't even know the name of the movie, it's Avengers 4 or 5 or whatever. The credits are nine hours long, and then the little after credit scene is Sam Jackson as Nick Fury. Because I guess all of the Thanos fighting takes place like on another planet somewhere. They're not even on Earth anymore. Yes. Yeah, so Thanos, or uh, Nick, Nick Fury's just driving down the road, and cars are crashing because there's nobody in them now. Right. And he gets out of the car, and he like gets out his little cell phone, then he starts dissolving And he goes, oh, mother, and then he dissolves before he can say the F word. And I'm like, you know what you just did, Marvel, is you just took 100% of the stakes out of this movie. Because we know you're not killing Nick Fury in a goddamn after credits scene. Right. We know you're bringing him back and everybody, like, every character that we watch die in this movie is going to come back. (laughs) So don't even need to watch the next movie now. And I got real mad. I'm going to make fun of you a little bit, just a okay. tiny bit, because... No, that's fair. Part of comics, just in general, is the stakes don't matter. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Homestuck. I mean, Homestuck, I guess, is really riffing on comics to begin with. There hasn't been a comic book character in existence that hasn't been killed and then brought back inexplicably. Superman dying was a big deal. And I think they left him in the ground for like a month before they like magicked him <laughs> back to life. Or went to Earth 2 and got the other Superman. Or something dumb like that. Wolverine is literally immortal. Like, I think he got hit by a nuclear bomb one time. And, like, vanished. And then finally, like... He did basically sell from Dragon Ball. Like, he just regenerated because he was like, Oh, yeah, no, here's a speck of Wolverine on the ground over here. I take your point. I understand. But part of these movies are supposed to be making these old comic book stories that nobody ever took seriously and weren't super popular, like making them grow up. They are a little bit more grounded in theory. I will say I enjoyed Marvel movies much more. I watched the Marvel movies back when they were... Ironically, I liked them better than they were, when they were separate. <laughs> I enjoyed Iron Man. I enjoyed Captain America. Uh, I even enjoyed Thor, like the first Thor movie. Avengers 1 was cute, I don't think I've watched anything since Avengers 1. Okay. Because what happens is the more stuff you throw into the blender, 
the less distinctive every piece is. Mm-hmm. You can tell me there's celery in there, but all I'm tasting is strawberry and banana and orange. Like, I don't care anymore. That was a weird metaphor. Was, I, I don't know where to go with that. I'm not going to make one. That sounds horrible. <laughs> but if you've watched the newest Wolverine movie, which is called Logan. I haven't. I've heard it's excellent. It is excellent. But Logan didn't have the same problem. It didn't fall back on that comic book trope. I, I don't know. It's anytime a story just throws revival in here willy-nilly, I lose all interest in it because... Well, yeah. There's no more stakes. And the Marvel movies up to this point, like, they haven't been killing characters at all because these are all bankable characters. And now we're just going to kill one of the most popular Marvel characters in an after credit scene in a movie where the plot is half of the characters die with no recourse? No, I don't think so. Doctor Strange or somebody's going to push the reset button in the next movie. Right. And, oh. I get your point about it being an after credit scene. Because if they did that to him, like in the middle of the movie. Just in the middle of the movie when when Thanos is doing his thing. If you see Nick Fury, just you might kind of go, oh my god. And then you might be like, is Sam Jackson done? I know you don't watch Doctor Who, but part of the big thing about Doctor Who is the lead character, the Doctor, regenerates. You probably know this much, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The Doctor dies, quote unquote. The Doctor gets put into like a death throes and their body will regenerate. It's a mechanism to bring in a different actor and bring in different writers, bring in different, you know, whatever. Doctor Who is an example of a revival mechanic that is done properly. Because it is kind of like clockwork. In fact, there's a compilation video on YouTube that just shows all the regenerations throughout the years. Which I enjoyed watching just because seeing how the visual effects get better and better as they do it. Oh yeah, it's really interesting seeing how that changes. What is... Because I I had the same discussion with viewers when I played Ori in the Blind Forest. Which has the same problem. The whole story is predicated on a character's death and the ramifications of that. And then at the end of the story, the character is just magically back to life. Poof, everybody's happy now. Right. Because Doctor Who is a good example because they're just basically pushing a reset button on the show. And everybody knows what's happening and we're all on board. Right. Other than that, like, can you think of any good examples of how these revivals have been done in a story that didn't cheapen the rest of the story? Um, Futurama. You have Fry or Leela or countless other characters get dismembered, maimed, outright killed constantly but because of the universe that it's in doesn't matter there's no stakes who cares if fry's been shot through the chest (laughs) um i don't know if that counts but that's the the tone of the media Mm. makes it so that fry getting a new head put on his body or whatever happens to him is just part of the comedy but the tone of this the show being it's a comedic nonsense world you're not expecting to have these moments where, like, oh, Amy's dead. And we're going to have an episode devoted to Amy's funeral. And, like, that's not going to happen in Futurama. And they, they set that tone really early on when Amy gets crushed and they just sew her head onto Fry's body. And then you have, obviously, the heads in jars of all the celebrities from the 20th century. Right, right, right. So the tone is very different. You get a little bit of that in something like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which has a similar tone to Futurama in a lot of ways, actually. You know what, though? Like, the various revivals in Hitchhiker's Guide did bother me. The story starts with Earth blowing up, 
And later you find out the Earth didn't blow up because something, something, space magic. So I'm of two minds of that. On one hand, I kind of know the behind the scenes that Douglas Adams kind of felt pressured to keep writing books and kind of hated the process. So I, a part of me thinks like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy should have been the trilogy that it originally was. It was a nice, tight little trilogy. And then he kept writing, which is funny because I don't think he even wanted to be a trilogy. I think it was supposed to be like two books, which was really supposed to be one book, but he missed the deadline. So it became two books. But it was a trilogy. And then he decided to write another book book and he brought earth back so on one hand i'm like okay i kind of think the series maybe should have ended after three but on the other hand the heartbreak of him being not the heartbreak but of him being able to like go back and find earth and then find out it's because earth is in a plural zone i think was the term they use where there's like multiple earths and then later on you find out he keeps trying to find earth again but he keeps finding these weird worlds that are like not quite earth <laughs> i don't know he finds like reptile earth yeah, there's there's the one Earth that's just called Now What, because that's what the people keep saying. It's just so bleak. I don't know, did you have any good examples? The best one I could think of recently, and it's not a modern example, I guess it kind of is modern-ish because of the films, would be Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. I was watching you play Lord of the Rings Lego. Which is the canonical version of the story in the 21st century. Right, of course. But you guys were talking about Gandalf, and you kept using a word that I had never heard before. But apparently he's like a demigod? Okay, so in the lore... <laughs> pull up a chair, guys. Here we go. In the lore of Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is a creature called an Istari. God created a bunch of angels called the Valar. And the Valar are split between... I forget what one group is called. Like, the more powerful, like, demigods. Like, kind of the Greek pantheon of gods is one thing. And then another less powerful group of the Maiar. And Gandalf is one of the Astari, which is a subset of the Maiar. When they saw, hey, you know, it made Middle-earth, and the elves and the men over there, everything's going to crap, and now we got Morgoth tromping around. We need to send some dudes over to kind of keep people on the right path. So we don't want you to go over and fix all their problems with angel magic, so your, your role is going to be kind of advisory. And they selected five of the Maiar, gave them the title of Astari, and that was Gandalf, Saruman, and the other wizards. Okay, let me just stop you right there. Sure. Because I read like half of The Lord of the Rings when I was in high school, and then I watched the three movies one time. Mm -hmm. Everything you just said sounds like something I would read on a wiki and say, come on, really? So there wasn't a wiki, but there was a book called The Silmarillion, which detailed- Which I've actually heard of. So The Silmarillion, it's not a book. It's not a novel, Okay. It is essentially just all of Tolkien's world-building notes from the First and Second Ages of Middle-earth. And then Lord of the Rings takes place in the Third Age. In the actual novels, very little of Gandalf's nature as an Istari. In fact, I don't even think they use the word Istari there at all. So when I read part of the books and when I watched the movies, it just seemed like Gandalf is just a badass wizard. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Let me ask you a serious question that's going to sound insulting. Okay. How is this sort of extra textual stuff, how is that any different from J.K. Rowling going to Pottermore and saying, you know, Gandalf's really gay or whatever other stuff she says that's not in the text, but is quote unquote canon because the author said it? I have a short answer and a long answer. Short answer is it's not different. Every author is going to have their collection of world building notes that doesn't make it into the story or whatever. And it's right. entirely possible that J.K. Rowling had a whole <laughs> list of this is every man that Dumbledore ever slept with in his 80 years on planet Earth. 
We don't know. None of that ever made it into the books. The long answer is Rowling didn't have the foresight to write any of that material even indirectly into the books. There's no hints in the books of Dumbledore's sexuality, and I would argue that there really doesn't need to be. They're children's books. This is not something that comes to the forefront of the story. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, and I would say even Final Fantasy thirteen in its own way, all of that extracurricular wiki stuff, it's not in the book, but it still affects what happens. The reason why Gandalf was able to fight the Balrog and then die and then come back as a more powerful form ties into all the world building stuff that Aragorn and Frodo don't care about and don't need to hear about. Like, there's an explanation for why he comes back that gets into the Silmarillion stuff. Okay. Do you think that Rawling putting these materials out in a website, blog, whatever kind of form cheapens it compared to Tolkien actually publishing the Silmarillion? Tolkien never published the Silmarillion, and I don't think there's any indication that he ever intended to. It's an unfinished work, a collection of his notes and things that his estate published after his death. That being okay. said, no, I don't. Rowling could publish whatever she wants whenever she wants. Mm-hmm. I only write very small amounts of fiction. And these days, most of what I write goes directly into my D&D campaign. But I have a uh, directory on my laptop that has just a bunch of world building notes, just various slapdash stuff. If it ever coalesces into a novel or not, I could never say. But I don't know. I don't think I would be able to resist after the book. Like people read the story. I'd be like, hey, I've got all this whole barrel of stuff. Who wants to go sifting through my garbage trough? Yeah. So no, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that at all. (laughs) That's kind of always been my issue with extra textual stuff, because in my mind, I'm kind of a death of the author Mm -hmm. critic. So in my mind, if it's not in the book, it doesn't matter. So that's why the something like the Similarillion kind of is is a weird edge case for me because it was published, but those were just notes. And any author is going to have notes. What's in the text of Lord of the Rings, I mean, it may be there. Don't get me wrong. I haven't read it all the way through. But from what I can tell, it sounds like Gandalf just appears as a badass wizard. Would it be hypocritical of me to agree with you about death of the author? Because I do. I, I try to hold stories to that standard. No, not at all. I think there are certain stories where... It becomes very gray. Mm -hmm. Tolkien's work in Middle-earth is one such story because the lore holds up the story that he wrote. And then I think another modern example would be A Song of Ice and Fire. Obviously, he's not writing any more novels, clearly, but they keep publishing like supplementary materials. There's like a book of maps that I really want to get. They put out like a, a Peoples of Westeros, a lot of these little supplement books that detail a lot of just the history of the world. And... That doesn't come into play in the story, but provides a lot of very useful context if you do read the story. Right. Like, this clearly wasn't just somebody wrote a wiki page about... I mean, I think it's one of those things where, as a as a lit major, I, can, I would say, if you can make the argument and then point to text, then I think that it's valid. And that's always been my issue with... And I'm, I'm not trying to pick on J.K. Rowling. She's just kind of the most obvious example, because she keeps going on and on about her text. And there's some things where she says something and I go, oh, that makes sense. Like, I actually think Gandalf being gay, I don't think it's important to the story, but I do think the clues are there. I think that it's kind of obvious in rereading that Gandalf had a love for Griswold. Like, I think that that's there in the text. I do like that you keep calling him Gandalf. That's making me very... Oh my God, Dumbledore, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I may be a whiskey deep. <laughs> you might be at this point. 
So let me attack it from this angle. I will say there is value in letting the work speak for itself. An author that continually comes back to speak on behalf of a work that is ostensibly done, I think can have the side effect of cheapening the work. This is the trouble that George Lucas found himself getting into with each new Star Wars reissue. He just couldn't help himself tinkering with it and tinkering with it and tinkering with it. Whereas Tolkien and Martin are world builders. When Martin puts out a book, The People of Westeros, he's not just inventing new stuff. This is the world he's... Right, and on some level, I really like that kind of world building. On the other hand, you do kind of have to figure out, like, has this part always been part of the plan, or is this part of what we're making up along the way? And I guess it just speaks to the quality of the writer, which way you go with it. Rawling, I don't believe she had a lot of this stuff planned out. I think there's a lot of stuff where she's just kind of like, oh, let me pluck this detail and then expand on it now, you know? She was definitely a make-it-up-as-you-go author, and she is also now in... This club of miraculous revival, because there's a stage play that takes place, like, I don't know, 20 years after the last Harry Potter book, where Harry Potter's kids get into trouble, and they get time travel, and they go back in time, and the whole plot is based around saving Cedric Diggory from his death at the Triwizard Tournament. Wait, what? That's what happens in The Cursed Child? They try to go save Cedric Diggory? They succeed, as far as I can tell. That, that makes no sense. That causes so many time paradoxes. Like, half of the plot of Harry Potter is predicated on Cedric Diggory dying. Like, he is the inspiration for them forming Dumbledore's army. And then, like, without that, how are they going to do half the crap they do in the fifth book? I'm literally in the middle of re-listing to, like, half of Harry Potter right now. <laughs> I've been listening to it on the audiobook. So, I'm, like, balls deep in Harry Potter right now. That sounded awful. Please cut that. <laughs> I think you could, just from the text of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, even if you didn't know about all the supplementary material or history, like you could piece together that there's something special about Gandalf and Saruman, but right. I don't know that I want to dive into that rabbit hole. <laughs> just to say that that's a revival that worked for me in the story, because I, they, especially in the movies, they kind of explain how it works and why it works. I should watch those movies again. I don't think I've watched them since they were new. That's a considerable time investment, though. It really is. I watched The Last Lord of the Rings in the theater, and I think the screening started at midnight, so my memories are fuzzy at best. Yeah, you, you got out of there about 3 a.m. then. And I want to say The Two Towers, I borrowed the DVD and had the extended version and watched it over the course of like three nights. <laughs> That's my Lord of the Rings history. Black Friday... I get an email from, so I have Project Fi. I think they call it Google Fi now. I have the Google phone, basically. And I get an email basically saying, oh, if you buy these phones, you get them for X amount off and X amount of credit. And it came out to like something crazy, like $400 off. They gave you like $200 off the price and then $200 worth of phone coverage credit. And so I'm like, sweet, I'm going to order two phones for me and my wife. And then the next couple days later, I go and I'm like checking my order. And I realize with a panic that for some reason, Google has picked up my old address. And I'm like, how the hell is that even possible? That, that it should be going to the new address. That should have been automatic. Like, I didn't type in my address. Like, it was just one of those things where I was like, I'm ordering a new phone, send it to my billing address, boom, end of story. You just, without any intervention, you just expect Google to know where you live. Well, no, they should because they have my billing address. Like, mm -hmm. but for some reason, it defaulted to my old address. So I panic and I go to cancel the orders and... The one order I cancel and then I replace it. 
And the other order, it's like, sorry, it already left the warehouse. I'm like, okay, whatever. So I call up FedEx and FedEx is like, we can't do anything on our end, but you can call the shipper and they can take care of it. So I'm like, cool, whatever. I proceed to spend the next week trying to get somebody on the phone at Google and they keep telling me they can't do anything. And I'm like, you can, all I need you to do is go into the system and update my address. That's all you got to do. Finally, they tell me, well, what you got to do, let the shipment fail and then it'll get sent back. And then you can replace the order. I'm like, well, will I still get my discount? And they're like, probably. And I'm like, well, that's not real reassuring. I immediately see a flaw in this plan. I see several flaws in this plan. I- I've had to sign for stuff before and the guy doesn't care what you sign. Well, that was my first fear. That was the first thing I said. I was like, well, what if somebody signs for it? And then the guy was basically like, well, you just reported as not delivered to you. And I'm like, okay, that sounds legit. So I spent like a week trying to get this taken care of. I actually called someone at FedEx and I said, cancel the order. Send it back to Google. And they said, we can do that. So then they finally get the phone back at Google and I replaced the order. And I'm like, okay, so am I going to get the discount? They're like, well, it's not going to show up, but we're going to escalate it to promotions and see what they say. I'm like, okay. <laughs> In the meantime, my phone arrives. One of the phones, the one that I ordered for myself, whoa, whoa, arrives. Whoa, whoa. You didn't give the phone that arrived to your wife? They were different phones. Oh, okay. She prefers the big put-in-your-purse phone. I prefer the one that actually fits in my pocket. I just had this mental image in my head of, like, you guys sitting in the living room, and you're playing on your brand new phone, just like, yeah, yours never showed up. I don't know what happened. (laughs) That would be a real dick move. Uh, No, it's literally (laughs) because she prefers the XL model. She prefers the larger screen. Okay. So my phone arrives, but I'm leaving it in the box because I'm like so pissed off at this point i'm like i'm just sending this back i don't even care long story short they end up shipping the new phone promotions contacts me and says we can't give you the full discount put it this way if this was just my order that got screwed so royally i would have sent the damn thing back but my wife is like exhausted she's point. she's like i'll pay for it i don't care just i want my phone you know (laughs) so we end up getting these two phones and i got a massive discount on one of them So that was my ordeal with Google. So I sent in our old phones for a trade-in. It was like, you know, going to be like a hundred bucks. It wasn't going to be much, but I was like, yeah, whatever. I get an email back claiming that one of the phones had a damaged screen, which it most certainly did not. And they're going to give me $20 for it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So I sent them an email. I said, screw that. If you're not going to give me more than 20 bucks for it, send me the phone back. I will sell it on eBay. And the thing is, we had Google Fi for the last year, and I loved it. It's a great service. But as soon as something goes wrong, their customer service is just ass. Anytime I see something like that, my first instinct is to check and see if it's also being sold on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Because Amazon, by necessity, their customer service is essentially perfect. I've bought hundreds of things off Amazon over the years, and I've had a few cases where, hey, this thing was not delivered. Okay, we're sending out another one. Like, that's the end of it. Right. I bought a DVD of a Disney, I can't remember what movie now, but it was a Disney movie, one of the animated movies, years and years and years ago, off the Amazon Marketplace. So it's not coming from their warehouse, it's coming from somebody who just uses their storefront. And what I get in the mail is like a bootleg copy of the DVD, <laughs> and somebody just like printed out a cover. I left a bad review for on the guy and told him there was a bootleg. I emailed Amazon, and they're like, okay, we'll send you a copy of the movie. Just a replacement copy. Just out of their warehouse. Just out of their the stacks they had in their warehouse. They made it right. Just immediately. Like, I wasn't going to escalate it that high. Like, the, the, the bootleg that I have still plays the movie fine. So you just got two copies of it now? I threw the bootleg away. <laughs> <laughs> 
you got rid of it. I'm not going to keep two copies of the same movie. I'm not a madman. My father-in-law used to work for UPS and would go to China and Hong Kong and all kinds of places uh, overseas. I remember this was about the time that the Wii was out. And I remember he brought me back just a stack of discs that were like bootleg Wii games. None of them played, sadly. I don't know if I had to like have a jailbroken like Wii or something for these to work or if it was like region locked or what. But I remember they were just hilarious, like Xerox pieces of paper folded over like a burned DVD-R <laughs> that they were apparently just selling on the streets of Hong Kong for like a quarter. I had a cool map that I want to talk about. So this is a map of the United States, and they've retained 50 states, so we still have 50 states. But they've redrawn the state boundaries so that all 50 states have an equal population. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea being that this would be a more fair electoral map for elections and stuff. I just like the map. But what's immediately disappointing, immediately disappointing about this map is looking at it. You live in the state of Atlanta and I live in the state of Tampa Bay. Yep. And everybody else gets really cool new names for their states. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I am still in the state of Atlanta. I was looking to see if I was far enough east now because I'm not in the city proper anymore. I may be in the state of Columbia, but I think I'm still in Atlanta. I think it's including enough of the outer suburbs. Florida has been split into four different states, the majority of the population ending up in either Tampa Bay or the new state of Miami. And then most of West Florida is now the state of Canaveral. And then the very tip of the panhandle gets spun off into a state called King, along with most of what used to be Alabama, etc., which I imagine is named after Martin Luther King. Uh, yeah, I have to imagine that's where it comes from. So here's my question. Mm -hmm. First of all, I just want a list of all of these names because there's so many cool names in like the Midwestern area that I don't actually know. I assume these are Indian tribes. If you're in the area, you probably recognize like streets and stuff they're named after. Like, I don't know what Basabi is, which is, appears to be what, former North Dakota-ish area. I I'm actually kind of scared to say some of these names because I know I'm going to... There is a Shasta. Hold on. <laughs> so the state of Shasta is a little bewildering because this takes most of like North California and Oregon and a little bit of Southern Washington, but also all of the Hawaiian islands which are not nearly that far north. Yeah, I don't understand why the Hawaiian Islands are part of Shasta. I guess the problem is you have Hawaii, which is just so far off, it's not going to have enough population to fill up a state on its own, so you got to put it with something. Also, the Alaskan Peninsula is part of the Seattle state of Rainier now. now I, I'm okay with that, because that's geographically the closest Alaska can get to I mean, contiguous states. Sure, why not? I do really like some of the names. We have a mammoth state now in and around, looks like Tennessee and parts of like maybe Kentucky. And, no, not, not quite Kentucky, but we have a state called Firelands. That's awesome. I want to live in Firelands. <laughs> We're Cleveland now. My favorite new state, I think this has to be Gary. Wait, there's a Gary? Yeah, because uh, there's a, there's the state of Chicago, which is really tiny. Right. Because large population. And just a little bit northeast of Chicago, you've got the state of Gary. I mean, there's a Gary, Indiana. So that's the only thing I can think of is like, is that Indiana oh, over maybe there? Maybe that's it. Maybe it's very north Indiana. Yeah. I enjoy this immense state of Shiprock, which goes from like well west of Las Vegas, past Albuquerque, into northern Texas. Like, Amarillo shows up on this. Shiprock is amazing. I'm surprised that state is as large as it is because it encompasses Las Vegas and Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Like, 
None of those cities have large populations. Las Vegas, I believe, does not actually have a large population. I think it's just one of those places that has a lot of seasonal workers and a lot of people who don't really live in Las Vegas. Now, Albuquerque, I have no idea how big it is. And all I know about Albuquerque is Breaking Bad. So, Because every major U.S. city basically has its own state. There's a, there's a state of Los Angeles. There's a very small state called Erba Buena, which is around San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I think New York is probably split into three states. Dallas and Houston are their own states. So yeah, I was a little surprised to see that you got Las Vegas and also... This Ogallala, which I don't want to live in the state of Ogallala. Those people definitely (laughs) got shafted. But it contains Denver and most of the population of Colorado and then everything all the way up to the Canadian border. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a whole lot of nothing up there. (laughs) Oh, I guess that's a number that might be interesting to have is how many people live in each of these states. I don't see that on this map here. It'd have to be about like 7, 7.5 million in each of these states. Yeah, that sounds about right, because I think that that's about what the metro area of Atlanta has is somewhere in the six to seven million area, you know, range, uh, which is basically what you've got as a city here. It's like metro Atlanta and a little bigger than what we call metro Atlanta now. Would it be better? Like, say we're going to pass a law and this is we're going to have 50 new states tomorrow and this is what they are. Mm -hmm. Would it be better for like me and you living in a a geographically large state, waking up and finding ourselves in a much, much smaller state? Mm -hmm. Or would it be better for somebody who lives in like Las Vegas to wake up tomorrow morning and find now they live in Shiprock, which is gargantuan? For me personally, given my politics, I would really enjoy living in a relatively geographically small state that is around a city center like that because the state of Atlanta is going to be a blue state. Mm -hmm. It's going to have liberal local laws. It's going to be more attuned to who I am. The problem with living in Georgia is it's a massive state with a bullseye of blue in the middle of it. And then the flip side of that coin would be somebody who wakes up to find himself living in, say, Mendocino way on the west coast over there because right they go to sleep in blue california and they they wake up in oh now we're in red mendocino the flip side of that is the people who live in northern california it is a relatively red area in a blue state now there are definitely going to be people who are upset the people in las vegas going back to them are probably getting the most shafted because las vegas i believe is pretty (laughs) liberal and now it has to share a world with like just everything out there no this would be terrible politically for most people (laughs) this would be the absolute worst What would be better, which would be far better, is to mandate the congressional district sizes and then assign electoral votes via congressional district. I think if we were making this change overnight, I think I would go to sleep in the most purple state in the nation and wake up the next day still in the most purple state in the nation. You think the state of Tampa Bay would still be purple as hell? I do, because, yeah, we have the large urban center, like, right around Tampa Bay, where I live. But then this also encompasses almost all of central Florida, all the way down, I think the Keys are in my state, all the way north up to Tallahassee. I'm wondering what politically this would do to Texas, because Chinati and Big Thicket, separately as states, I mean, then you get the state of Houston... That's blue. But then I don't know what happens. to. I think Chinati and Big Thicket separated like that maybe become purple. Possibly, because Austin and San Antonio are both 
fairly large cities. I know both Austin and San Antonio are pretty blue in and around the city yeah. center. And then Shiprock up there is taking a bit of your North Texas because Amarillo there, that's North Texas. So yeah, yeah, I think Shiprock turns bright red and I think you get a couple of purple to blue. I think Texas changes a lot. Like it's a very interesting thought experiment. I would love to see someone to extrapolate this and then apply like the 2016 and maybe like the 2008 votes and kind of see how everything shakes out. Quick, someone send this over to Nate Silver. <laughs> oh, you know what? I just noticed. I thought my favorite state was going to be the state of Gary. Mm-hmm. There's a state, looks like it was part of probably New York City, called Throng's Neck. We have a state called Throng's Neck now. Oh, see, I was thinking Throng's Neck, for whatever reason, just makes me think it's like a long neck seabird of some sort. That they're like, that's a Throng's Neck. I was trying to see if I could find a name better than Throng's Neck. I mean, Firelands is still pretty good. And I do like just saying Shasta. <laughs> I haven't seen The Cursed Child, and I'm not going to. But how funny would it be if there's just a scene where they're just, like, Harry, like old Harry and Hermione are just sitting around and talking. And at the end of the scene, apropos of nothing, one of them just says, oh, by the way, Dumbledore's gay. And then just drop curtain, <laughs> next scene. Drop the curtain. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-da. ba da ba da 